Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You can now support Ghost Maps on Patreon. Simply look for We Are Huntu or click the link in the description. Ghost Maps is hosted on Libsyn. Get up to two months of free podcast hosting for your show from Libsyn with the promo code HANTU. Check out the description for more details. Ghost Maps Veronica seems pretty lively, all things considered. I'm essentially functioning on adrenaline from finally putting this huge story I've been working on to bed, she says. That and coffee, of course, she adds with a laugh. Lots of coffee. Veronica's a journalist. Chances are, if you've picked up a newspaper in the last 15 years, you've read her work before. Her hair's starting to show hints of white, and there are already some lines etched on her face. But those are only indicators of how the jobs aged her. She might joke that she's fueled by caffeine, but in truth, she has an infectiously youthful energy about her. We'd spoken on the phone a few days ago, before meeting at this coffee shop in Bishan. On that call, Veronica related to me a little about her incident with the level of detail you'd expect from much older veterans in her field. I tell her that, to put it lightly, she's quite a storyteller. She laughs, waving off the compliment. All part of the job, she says, matter-of-factly. You want to accurately get the facts out there, of course. But in a lot of these accounts, you also want to bring out that um, human element. It's this sense of empathy that nearly got her into trouble back in 2015. As it turns out, finding the humanity in spirits can be a dangerous line to walk, she says, with a smirk, just as our drinks arrive. I take that as my cue and place my recorder on the table. Before I can switch it on, though, her eyes widen. She excitedly asks about its make and model, noting how old it is. I tell her that she's the first of my interviewees to show any interest in the recorder. She laughs again. I've had a couple of recorders before, she says, 
These days, we all just use our phones, but it's always nice to see something a bit more old school. I switch it on, and she immediately leans in and goes, Test, test. Mic check. I chuckle, then play it back for her. <laughs> Love it, she says, with that youthful energy as she listens to the crackle of her own voice through the device. I switch it back to record, and she sits up straight, clearly ready to tell her story now. So, I ask her to start from the beginning. Veronica was on a backpacking trip with her best friend, a Thai journalist named Me. The plan was that Veronica would fly up to Bangkok, where she'd meet Me. From there, they'd take a sleeper train to Chiang Mai. The pair hadn't seen each other for six months at that point. Both of our schedules are pretty erratic, and we get that. She explains. It's one of the reasons why we're best friends. So, after a teary reunion at the airport, Veronica and May spent the hour-long ride to the station. The first hour or so aboard the train, catching up. It was only after they had settled in that they noticed how empty the train was. We walked up and down and realized we were the only ones in our carriage, she says. It was great at first. They felt more relaxed and their laughs grew a lot louder. But as nice as it was to spend time with May again, exhaustion from a day of traveling eventually caught up with Veronica. She climbed up onto the top bunk of their room and called it a night at around 9pm. I'm a light sleeper though, she says. So I was vaguely aware of me doing her own thing, even after I turned in. Veronica drifted in and out of consciousness, while her best friend watched a couple of TV shows, checked her email, and even got some work done. By around 2am, however, it was May's turn to head to bed. With the lights out, Veronica fell deeper into sleep. Until she was awoken by a voice. It was a man muttering to himself in Thai, she says. The voice was coming from the corner of the room near the sliding door. I flipped over in bed to face that corner, she tells me, then adds, I wasn't fully awake yet, but I was awake enough to deal with an intruder, that's for sure. Whether it was the overwhelming darkness of the room or something else, however, Veronica couldn't see 
anyone there. And just as soon as she turned over, the voice had gone silent. I was an atheist at the time, so my first instinct was that I had imagined the whole thing. She shrugs. Some remnant from my dream that somehow echoed into the real world. I thought. She rolled over and went back to sleep. She doesn't know how long she had been sleeping until, yet again, she was awoken by that voice. This time, however, the man was speaking a mix of English and Thai. Slowly, begrudgingly, Veronica rolled back over, still believing that this was all in her head. But as she faced that corner again, she was suddenly overcome with a sensation. She still couldn't see anyone, but she knew with absolute certainty that there was someone there. Veronica wanted to call out to me, as much for her friend's safety as her own. But something stopped her. Some force paralyzed her. She tried and tried to alert me, fighting back her own anxiety, knowing that her friend needed her. I need to call out to me, I, I kept thinking to myself, Veronica tells me. What really scared me was and the voice replied, Me is asleep, and she is safe. It said, What came after was a blur, but Veronica felt a strange, unnatural peace wash over her. She remembers speaking to the voice. It was like we were chatting. And I, I started to feel sorry for it. I think I was even trying to console it. At some point... Veronica fell back asleep, vaguely aware of the distant sound of water. The next morning, as the warm sunlight streamed into the train, Veronica woke up, with no memory of that strange voice at first. I just went to the other side of the carriage carrying my toiletries as if this was just another trip, she says, chuckling mirthlessly. It was as she was returning to her room 
when it slowly started to come back to her. The emptiness of the carriage sent her mind reeling to the night before, to the joy of being with May again, and the terror that gripped her as she stared into the darkness of that corner of their room. She quickly woke May. May was sure it was some kind of intruder and insisted that they look for the conductor, Veronica tells me. And she adds, but I knew better. Sure enough, the conductor assured them that no one had entered their carriage all night. He did add, however, that he wasn't entirely surprised that Veronica had a strange encounter, considering which carriage they were in. May tried to press the conductor for more information, but he wasn't forthcoming. He looked like he regretted telling us anything at all, Veronica says. The pair headed back to their room, where May dug out her laptop and started researching the train they were in. She looked up its train reporting number, their carriage, everything. What they found explained more than Veronica had expected. In 1995, our train had collided with a truck somewhere near a river, Veronica tells me, her voice growing quieter. Fifty people had died in the accident. The truck had irreparably damaged carriages 14, 15, and above. Those carriages had been replaced, but all the other carriages where many people had died remained in use. Our carriage, Veronica says in almost a whisper, was number 13. I became more agnostic than atheist after that, Veronica tells me, her tone lightening back up a bit. May, the more spiritual of the pair at the time, explained to her how lucky she was. She believed that Veronica had spoken to the ghost of someone who had died in the accident. She said that, even though the ghost didn't seem to have any malicious intent, it might have been trying to lure Veronica to join it in the spirit world, or to take its place. These kind of ghosts are called Pinam, if I'm 
remembering this right? Veronica says, her tone taking a slight dip again. From what I learned, its name has a dual meaning. She continues. It could mean water spirit or spirit of vengeance. She pauses for a moment, then shakes her head and offers me a smile. It's not as bright as it was before, sure. But behind that smile, I can still see her youthful energy burning just as bright. So, she says, taking a sip from her coffee. It's your turn to tell me a story. Where, oh where, did you get this beautiful old recorder? Inda proudly scrolls through photo after photo of her kids on her phone. She has two children back home in northern Java, a daughter and a son, both in their mid-twenties now. Her daughter, she tells me, gave birth to Inda's first grandchild six months ago, a beautiful baby girl. A grandmother at 49? Not bad, right? She says, beaming. I nod, genuinely impressed. Inda's been working in Singapore for the better part of the last 20 years. She's watched other people's kids grow up, but missed most of her own children's lives. She still hasn't even seen her granddaughter in person. Yet, somehow, she's managed to keep her family together this whole time. I'm not saying it's been easy, but I've been lucky. Despite all the challenges, she says. Those challenges, of course, include the distance separating them, but they also include the reason I'm meeting her this evening at a coffee shop in Tiongbaru. Pregnancies are already difficult times, she says. When you throw in what happened to us, sometimes I wonder how we made it through. She pauses for a second, then turns to face me, looking even more assured than before. So, I place my recorder on the table and ask her to start from the beginning. It was 27 years ago in Cherubon. Inda was three months pregnant with her daughter. Like all young mothers-to-be, Every day was a mix of excitement and worry. Would the child be healthy? Would she look more like her mother or her father? What would they name her? Would they have enough money to give her the life that she deserves? Inda's specific worry during this particular week was family history. Would their daughter inherit Inda's mother-in-law's thinning hair? Or would she eventually have to deal with high blood pressure like Inda's dad? 
over dinner one night, Inda casually asked her husband, Buddy, if there was anything serious from his side that she should know about. The seemingly innocent question shocked her husband for a second before he stammered out a weak response and excused himself. Inda, however, wouldn't let it go. If there was something that could harm her unborn child, she needed to know. She pushed Buri for an answer, and he finally relented. His family had been cursed. Inda was skeptical at first, but she kept listening anyway. Buri didn't know all the details. An ancestor had offended the wrong person at some point or something like that. But as long as he could remember, many of the children in his extended family either died in the womb or early in life. No one would talk about how they died though. He eventually learned from an older cousin that a creature would terrorize the pregnant women and young children. A creature that looked like a woman with long hair and wore a white dress. Inda struggled to process everything she had just heard. He certainly believed it, she tells me. But I didn't want to. Because if it was true, then my child was in danger. Of course I was going to be ready to protect her, but it would have been so much better if there was nothing to protect her from in the first place, you know? Any lingering skepticism in the head slowly melted away over the next few months of her pregnancy. Every other night, she would hear wailing from the trees outside their home. It wasn't the sound of an animal that she recognized. It sounded more like the cries of a woman. She would look out the window trying to see something, anything. But no matter how much she stared out into the black void of night, she saw no sign of the creature that taunted her. Not until the night she went into labor. She arrived at the hospital that evening. She heard it again, faintly, in the distance. The sounds of a woman wailing. There was something different this time though. Buddy seemed to sense it too, as he rushed her into the hospital's lobby. Just before they entered, however, Inda saw it. A figure in white, waiting, watching from the branches of one of the trees near the hospital. From beneath its long hair that covered its face, Inda could see that the creature was smiling hungrily. Inda tells me 
that the delivery went off without a hitch. Throughout her stay at the hospital, though, her husband stood watch, barely even allowing himself the chance to bond with his newborn daughter. Before they headed home, they called upon a specialist to secure their house from any attacks. He conducted a couple of rituals and said that they would be enough to keep the creature out, she says. But he also warned us to keep watch at night for at least the first 40 days, just to be sure. Every night, Buddy and Enda would take turns to stay up. It's kind of like normal parenting duties, I guess, she says with a smirk. Except, instead of just changing her diapers and putting her back to bed, we had to watch out for her monster. Every once in a while, Inda would catch sight of it. Or she thought she did. A flash of white in the pitch black darkness of the surrounding trees. Seemed to be moving closer and closer to their home. But always stopped before it got too close. As they neared the end of those first 40 days though, Inda and Buddy allowed themselves to relax a little, stealing a couple of minutes to nap on some nights. They were safe, after all. At least they thought they were. On the 38th night, Inda had dozed off for just a second or two, and she heard the distinct creak of their bedroom window opening. Snapped awake, Inda leapt out of the chair she had been sitting in, and clear as day saw it. A woman, or what looked like a woman, its hair covering its face, wearing a white dress stained with dried blood. As Inda recovered from her shock, she realized that the creature's long, bony fingers were creeping into the room through the window. And that's when Inda did something that she still can't believe she did till this day. She stormed towards it. Quickly, the creature scurried away from the window and leapt to the nearest tree's branches. It was more likely the protections that the specialist had put into place that scared it away, Inda admits. But in that moment, she got a good look in the creature's eyes for just a second. And what she thought she saw was understanding. Maybe I'm imagining it, she says. But I think it knew that no matter how frightening it was, I would do anything 
to keep my baby girl safe. Enda tells me that they went through the whole ordeal again when she was pregnant with her son the year after. But that second time, she wasn't as afraid. Of course I was still scared, but any fear I felt this time was not for my own safety, or of the creature that had cursed my husband's family, she says. I was just more determined than ever that nothing was going to harm my family. I ask her if the curse has been lifted since then. She frowns, shakes her head slowly. That frown, however, quickly gives way to that look of pride she wore while showing me photos of her children. My daughter was totally prepared when it was her time to become a mother, she says, beaming. He's excited. I can tell, even before he takes a seat across from me. Ernest introduces himself and orders his drink. He's not the first person I've known who's actually eager to tell a story about an encounter, but it's still always surprising. I tell him so, and he laughs. And it's a good-natured laugh. The kind of laugh someone who's had to laugh for far worse in his life. I get it, he says. But I can either be traumatised by it, or I can look on a bright side. I ask him, what is the bright side? He tells me that now he's got a true blue ghost story to tell. He says he never had one, all through national service, or when he was growing up. And I survived, he says. I don't think I ever felt more alive as when I stepped onto the jetty in Changi that Saturday evening. I ask him to start from the beginning. Ernest had gone camping with his buddy Dave on the beach on the west side of Pulaubin. They'd left on a Friday night in a ferry with about five other people and the plan was to stay there till that Sunday morning. Roughing it out, they said really get a sense of what it was like to enjoy nature. Of course, he would later recall with a laugh that they'd brought enough snacks to last them the weekend. Still, it started out as good fun, making the trip, setting up camp, and getting a small fire going just in time for nightfall. Dave and Ernest shared a reasonably sizable tent. So after dinner, a couple of beers, and tipsily talking about life, they both turned in. That's when it started, Ernest says, that enthusiasm still there, even as his tone gets a touch darker. We thought they were monkeys at first, tossing shit against our tent. But then they would hear children laughing. It was off in a distance at first, almost as if it was coming from the sea. But then it slowly got closer. It never really got to be right outside the tent. But it got close enough that he couldn't ignore it. This went on for what felt like an hour. But Ernest knew it wasn't that long. Time 
seemed to be working differently. He tried to keep his wits about him, but Dave started to show signs of cracking. Let's just go out there and face it, he'd said. Better than this bullshit hiding. Ernest held him back. But that's when he heard it. The sound of his brother calling out to him. Go. It was hypnotic, he says. Like I couldn't resist it. I had to go out to see Jeffrey. I asked him how he resisted. He tells me, with just a hint of sadness creeping into his voice, that whatever was out there had made the biggest mistake. Sure, my initial instinct was to go out there, he says. But the longer I held off, the more I thought about my brother, and the more I knew that he would have resisted if it had been my voice calling out to him. I nod solemnly, gesture for him to continue. Ernest shook his head and pulled back. It was then that he realized that Dave was already huddled in a corner, covering his ears, shaking. Whatever was calling out to Ernest's friend was having better luck with him. Ernest sat next to Dave and put his arms around him, providing a tangible reason not to go out there, reassuring him that they get through the night. And they did. In the morning, the pair unzipped the tent and cautiously stepped outside. They thought they saw tracks in the sand, as if giant snakes had slithered up to where they were from the ocean. But they couldn't be sure. They had arrived too late last night and weren't really paying attention to the sand. Quickly, they packed up the equipment and tried to make their way to the jetty. It took them a while to find their way back which Ernest said he didn't want to admit at the time, was very strange. They had made it from the jetty to the beach without any problem in evening's fading light the night before. But it didn't make much difference, even when they finally figured out the path to the jetty. The fairies hadn't been able to come in all morning for some reason. An old uncle at the jetty made some ominous comment about something in the water. But when Ernest and Dave pressed him, he just stared out at the sea. When the ferry finally arrived, the two of them were the only ones to hop on board. By evening, they were back on the mainland. Dave didn't take it as well, Anna says with a sigh. He tells me that whatever his friend heard, he didn't want to talk about. He never pressed him about it, but when Anna came back, he had his own issues with his brother. I asked him again why, even with all the fallout, he was still so positive. He sips his drink thoughtfully, just shrugs. What am I supposed to do? Break down, he says. Might as well have stepped outside the tent that night for all the difference it would have made. He stares off absently. I imagine that's how the uncle at a jetty must have looked that day. Seeing monsters that weren't there. Ernest shakes his head, and his genial smile returns. Reminds me again that he now has a cool story to tell people about his camping trip to Ubin. I return the smile, but move on to more everyday topics before we part ways.
Iskandar pulls up in his plain blue car to the small, out-of-the-way coffee shop in Salita, then waves cheerily to me. Aside from a morose-looking elderly man at another table, I seem to be the only other patron here. As Iskandar takes a seat across from me, the Chinese drink stall uncle walks over and yells out a greeting in Hokkien. Iskandar and the uncle exchange a few laughs and pleasantries in Malay before we order. I hope you didn't have any trouble finding the place, Iskandar says. I tell him with a smirk that it definitely took me a while to get here. The coffee shop's signboard has clearly been faded for a long time. When I arrived earlier, I tried to ask the uncle for the location's name. The drink stall uncle chuckled and said that it hasn't had a name for so long that even if I knew it, it wouldn't make much difference. Located down a small dirt path after a series of twists and turns, Iskandar tells me that the coffee shop has a die-hard customer base that's kept it going for years. They're mostly taxi drivers and security guards, he explains. That's why they're only open from 7pm onwards. I ask Iskandar how he knows about it then. He smiles, shrugs, and says, You're not gonna believe it. But I just love going on night drives. I ask him why he thinks I wouldn't believe his explanation. Everyone I've told that to, outside of the people here, they just find it strange, he says, visibly relaxing a little more. Like, not having a destination when you get into your car makes you some kind of weirdo. I tell him that considering how much cars cost here, I can see why some people would want to make sure every drive was for a reason. He gives me another smile, this one even friendlier. It's a smile that tells me that I'll clearly fit in around here. Iskandar says that it's his love of driving that actually resulted in his experience. Our drinks arrive and Iskandar tells the uncle that he is here to talk to me about his drive to Kulai. The uncle cheers excitedly, then pulls up a chair right next to me. And if ever there was a cue to get my recorder out, well, this certainly was it. I offer up a smile to the uncle, then turn to Iskandar and ask him to start from the beginning. It was 2012. Iskandar had bought a car just two years prior. All his friends knew that if they ever had a late-night craving or just needed some company at three in the morning, Iskandar was the guy to call. It was 
precisely why his primary school buddy, Tommy, had messaged him on a Wednesday, asking him if he was free late that Friday night. Tommy has never been the planning type, Iskandar tells me, sounding almost apologetic for his friend, then quickly adds, but he's a good guy nonetheless. Tommy had somehow learned about some rental houses in the town of Kulai in Johor that were going for a decent rate. He asked if Iskandar could drive him up to take a look at the homes. Tommy's elderly dad's Malaysian, you see, and he wanted to find an affordable place for him, Iskandar explains. Before committing to anything though, Iskandar had asked Tommy where he'd heard about these cheap rental houses. He also asked why they were supposed to go up to Kulai at night, specifically. Tommy's answers didn't exactly fill him with confidence. A friend of a friend had told him about it. These rental homes were cheap because they were legally dubious somehow. Iskandar had asked Tommy if he was sure that he wanted to do this. Tommy said that, yeah, he definitely did. At worst, it's a waste of time and we just find somewhere to grab a bite after. Tommy had said, his relaxed tone only worrying Iskandar even more. Still, Iskandar agreed, though more to keep an eye on his friend than anything else. Plus, if nothing actually happened, then at least he'd get a great night drive out of it. Iskandar and Tommy reached the Woodlands checkpoint at about 10 that Friday night. They took a leisurely drive up the North-South Highway, singing along to the radio to keep themselves awake and alert. By the time they pulled off the highway into Kulai itself, it was around midnight. I had no idea where to go by that point. And of course, neither did Tommy, Iskandar says with a sigh, followed by a light chuckle. Luckily, though strangely, there were a few people around, even at that hour, that Iskandar and Tommy could ask for directions. Tommy asked about rental houses, and everyone seemed to respond with the same question, says Iskandar. Are you looking for Danish? Iskandar didn't know who this Danish was, and he was pretty sure that neither did Tommy. He assumed that this must have been a real estate agent or someone that dealt with the houses. But there was something about the tone that the residents used. Almost like they didn't feel safe to speak freely, but they were still trying to warn the pair about something. Tommy clearly didn't pick up on that tone though. After the first couple of residents, he answered with a firm yes whenever anyone asked 
if they were looking for Danish. All of the residents simply shook their heads solemnly. So they kept driving, and pretty soon, they found themselves deep in a quiet neighborhood filled with seemingly empty buildings. Iskandar grew anxious and started looking for a way back to the more populated areas. Somehow, however, they found themselves instead driving up a dual carriageway that was surrounded by rubber trees on either side. The carriageway led up a winding pathway. And that's when they encountered their first sign of trouble, though not of the supernatural kind. There were these kids drinking and smoking beside a red car, Iskandar says. Hopelessly lost, the pair drove up beside them and asked again about the rental houses. The kids didn't respond at first. Instead, they just glared menacingly at Iskandar and Tommy. Finally, one of the kids, the obvious leader of the group, said that they didn't know what Tommy was talking about. As Iskandar and Tommy drove off though, they heard the kids laughing maliciously, practically cackling at them and yelling taunts like, You ni nak pergi mana? Where do you want to go? Less than a minute later, Iskandar saw headlights flashing at him in the rearview mirror. The headlights of that red car. The malicious laughter of the kids echoed into the night as they sped up. Iskandar likewise slammed his foot on the accelerator to outrun their pursuers. He took lefts and rights at random even as the kids tossed glass bottles at his car. He kept going and going until he couldn't see the headlights in his rearview mirror any longer or hear their taunts. We were both so relieved that we just began laughing, Iskandar tells me. As safe as they felt they were, however, Iskandar and Tommy now found themselves more lost than before. They kept driving down the straight road they were on until they came across a row of houses all seemingly abandoned in the middle of their construction. They both wondered whether these were the rental houses that Tommy had been looking for. I asked him again who told him about these houses, and all he could tell me was the same thing. A friend of a friend, Iskandar says. The road eventually took them to a cul-de-sac, where among all the half-built homes, they saw, weirdly enough, an old beat-up 
two-seater couch on the pavement. They remarked about how odd that was at first. But as they drove closer, Tommy's demeanor started to change. His eyes widened and he was stammering while slapping my arm in a panic, Iskanda says. I kept asking him what was wrong until he just hissed at me to stop the car and let him drive. Iskanda wanted to tell Tommy that there was no way he was going to drive his car, not in the state he was in. But looking at his friend, seeing the terror in his eyes, Iskanda knew there was no way he was going to be able to argue with him. So he did as Tommy said. After executing a speedy three-point turn, Tommy sped out of that area. He kept driving, putting as much distance between that cul-de-sac and them as quickly as he could. Until eventually, much to Iskandar's relief, they approached a more populated area. From there, they were soon back on North-South Highway and returning to Singapore. When they got past the causeway, Tommy drove them to the nearest coffee shop he could find. Neither of them had said a thing for that entire two-hour or so drive. Iskandar had tried to ask Tommy a couple of times what had happened, what he had seen. But Tommy would only raise a finger to his lips and shake his head. Once they sat down at the coffee shop, however, Iskandar couldn't hold his tongue any longer. Much to the shock of the other patrons, he yelled out, What the hell, man? Tommy didn't answer immediately, though. He just shakily lit a cigarette. Not looking at Iskandar, he took a long drag off his smoke, then exhaled as his body sank down into his seat. He then asked, Did you get a... Did you... Did you get a weird feeling from that... That couch is? It's gonna try to joke that the entire night was weird. But Tommy raised his voice a little and asked him again, Did you see anything on that couch is? Taken aback, Iskandar said that he hadn't noticed anything strange about it. Still averting his gaze, Tommy said, I saw something. Someone. On that couch. Iskandar was confused at first, but then realized what Tommy was saying. Someone? Iskandar asked. An old man, an old Indian man, he said at first. Then, is 
his his face he didn't Tommy took another drag off his cigarette then finally looking at Iskandar he said he didn't have a face Iskandar smiles and tells me that the drink stall uncle here at this nameless coffee shop has heard this story multiple times but i always like to hear it again the uncle exclaims with a big boisterous laugh as he makes his way back to his stall unlike the uncle however i'm slightly less impressed i've heard stories of a faceless man countless times before It's one of those urban legends that everyone has their own variation on. As detailed as Iskandar's story is, I'm inclined to dismiss this one. I don't tell him this, of course. Instead, I thank him for sharing his story. Then, with a chuckle, I add that I'm glad that it could entertain the uncle. and maybe even that other old man here too Meskanda still smiling asks what other old man I look at him perplexed for a split second I wonder whether this is some kind of joke then I catch sight of the drink stall uncle is looking directly at me gravely and ever so slightly shaking his head i read the uncle's meaning loud and clear iskandar doesn't see this other man with a smile of my own i tell iskandar that it's nothing and quickly changed the topic. I chat with him for a little while longer before I tell him that I need to leave for another interview. He bids me goodbye and continues to enjoy his drink at the coffee shop, believing himself to be its only patron. Joe Fernandez has been a cop for a number of years now. The national service buddy of my last interviewee, Joe decided to sign on after serving his mandatory 2-year stint. At first, it was just cuz I didn't know what I wanted to do after NS. Joe says, swinging his arm casually around the back of his red plastic chair. He adds, however, that after a while, he realized he had a natural affinity for the work. We're sitting at a coffee shop just a couple of blocks away from his home in Bedok. It's one of Joe's off days, which he tells me he treasures dearly. I'm good at my job, but I make it a point to work to live 
not to live to work. If you will excuse the cliche. He chuckles. Joe certainly seems like a pretty chilled out guy. Which is surprising since his friend told me that Joe's seen more than his fair share of strange occurrences. It's just part of the job, he shrugs. When you do night patrols, you're sure to encounter some pretty unusual stuff. I ask him if it's ever affected him, and he gives me an easy smile. Not really, he says. But there have been times when it's come close. This particular incident, however, was definitely one of the most disturbing. So, with my recorder switched on and ready, I asked Joe to start from the beginning. Two years ago, Joe was partnered up with a guy named Beng Huat. Beng Huat, Joe tells me, was a good guy, but just a little uptight. We got along great though, he says. I think we balanced each other's energy really well. That meant that Beng Huat was a positive influence on Joe when it came time to file their paperwork. But it also meant that during those quieter shifts, Joe encouraged Beng Huat to just relax a little. It was a Friday night during one of those quieter shifts when Joe and Beng Huat parked their car on a dirt path along Old Tampanese Road. That stretch was known for illegal races sometimes. So we figured we'd just wait there, Joe says. At worst, we'd have to deal with a couple of joyriders. At best, it'd be nice and peaceful, you know? Even though the famously creepy road had been developed a little more over the years, Joe says that there was nevertheless a certain aura to it, especially at three in the morning. It wasn't exactly super unnerving, but I mean, come on, it's still Old Tampanese Road, Joe says. It was around that hour when Beng Huat spotted an old woman slowly approaching their car. The woman was wearing flip-flops, loose-fitting trousers, and a plain t-shirt. Her graying hair was cut short, and her age showed in the many lines on her face. Neither Joe nor Bing Huat saw where she had come from. It was as if she just appeared out of thin air. Joe reasoned that they weren't paying attention, but Bing Huat felt that there was something off about the whole situation. Eventually, however, Joe convinced Benquat that they should speak to the old woman. She was staring blankly ahead, Joe says. She looked like she was totally out of it, like 
she was lost and they didn't even realize that she was lost. The pair waved and called out to the old woman as they got out of their car and made their way towards her. In both Mandarin and Malay, they asked her why she was wandering around alone at this hour. Still, no response. Finally, after a minute or so of trying to get an answer from her, Joe asked her for her identity card. She seemed to understand this. She fished out her IC from her trousers pocket and handed it over. Joe jogged back to their vehicle. He radioed their HQ and read out her IC number to find out if the old woman had a history of just wandering off. After he had done so, HQ asked him to read the number again. His colleague's voice on the other end of the radio, sounding a little perplexed. Joe relayed the IC number once more. There was a pause. Before Joe's colleague, his voice now shakier, asked, uh, Are you sure? Joe, more annoyed than anything else, said that of course he was sure. He read out the number one last time. His colleague told him that the number can't be right. This woman, his colleague said, died ten years ago. It was then that Joe noticed the two holes punched into the identity card. Holes that signified that the card was no longer in use. Not wanting to alarm Beng Huat, Joe tried to stroll over to his partner and the woman as casually as he could. He started to notice how pale she was, how there was a tinge of blue to her complexion. Benghuat asked him what HQ had said, but he didn't respond. Instead, he just handed the IC back to the old woman and wished her a nice evening. Benghuat wanted to push Joe for an answer, but whether his own instincts got the better of him, or he saw the look on Joe's face, he stopped himself. The old woman walked off. And I swear to you, Joe says, we had our eyes on her the whole time, but neither of us could tell you when exactly she just disappeared from our sight. As soon as they regained their wits, the pair leapt back into their car and sped back to HQ. The following week, Joe tells me, both Benghuat and I felt violently ill. He might have still been able to chalk this up as a coincidence, but this happened on the Friday after the incident, and both of them started to throw up 
at around 3 a.m. We told our superiors what had happened. They made sure that we never patrolled that area ever again, he says. I asked him if Benkwat grew more uptight after that. And he laughs. Not at all, bro, Joe says, giving me yet another easy smile. I guess we can chalk that up to my positive influence. Rita's my second interviewee on this chilly, hungry ghost month evening. When she arrives at the coffee shop in Ubi, I'm struck by how deliberate she is. That's the best way I can think of to describe it. She moves only when she absolutely needs to and says only what she feels needs to be said. As we order our drinks, I worry this means I'll have to coax more information out of her. Soon, however, I realize that while she may not say much, every word she utters is incredibly well chosen. I point this out to her, and if she's surprised or amused, she certainly doesn't show it. Instead, she pauses for a moment, then explains that it's something she's learned over time. When you consciously avoid malicious entities, meticulous planning becomes second nature, she says. Rita has the third eye, the ability to see spirits and other supernatural creatures. It wasn't something she was born with, and certainly not something she seeked out. She was introduced to me by a mutual friend, who told me that I might be interested in the story behind her third eye. A story that dates back to Rita's childhood. I ask Rita if it's alright if I record our conversation, and she gives me only the slightest nod. I then place my recorder on the table and ask her to start from the beginning. Rita grew up in a sizable home in Kota Kinabalu, Sabah. It was a home that was built from the money a grandfather made through the family business. As a child, she wasn't entirely sure what that family business was, though. It seemed to have its fingers in everything, from manufacturing to shipping. Whatever the true nature of the business, however, it paid for the family's lavish lifestyle and the best education that money could buy. When Rita turned 15 in 2002, though, her father, who was her grandfather's eldest son, explained to her how their family gained their fortune. He told her that half a century ago, 
her grandfather had made a deal with an entity, a dark spirit that could provide for her family nearly limitless financial gain. But there was a catch. The creature needed her grandfather to feed it several vials of Rita's father's blood every year during the Hungry Ghost Month. Pretty soon, Rita's grandfather would retire and her father would take over the business. But that wasn't the only thing he would inherit, though. As the eldest child of the head of the company, Rita would have to give her blood to keep the entity happy. Her father, however, knew firsthand the kind of trauma that this ritual could inflict upon his beloved daughter. Emboldened by the fact that he had found religion, Rita's father was intent on breaking the cycle and freeing his family from the entity once and for all. This proved much more difficult than he had hoped of. The entity lived in a cave in the middle of a jungle south of the city. Rita and her father made most of the trip in one of the family's jeeps, then trekked for about three kilometers through lush greenery. The directions to this cave were etched into Rita's father's memory, thanks to the sense of dread it had filled him with as a child. As Rita and her father grew closer to the cave, she felt that dread creeping up on her too. She noticed that the plants and trees now seemed to either be dead or dying. The ambient noise of the jungle, from the chittering of animals to the sound of the leaves rustling in the wind, had eerily gone quiet. Finally, reaching the cave, Rita's father braced himself with a deep breath, then yelled out, trying his best to keep his tone level. Come out! It's Benny's son! The silence that filled the air remained undisturbed for only a moment. From within the cave came a growling, almost like a cough. Rita could see nothing. The interior of the cave was hidden in shadows. Shadows that weren't so much made up of darkness, but the complete absence of light. It was from within those shadows that two gnarly old arms reached out hungrily. 
her father instinctively pushed Rita behind him and stepped forward and said that the deal would not continue. The old arms stopped reaching out, but seemed to shake with anger. For the first time since about a kilometer ago, wind rushed through the jungle, shaking the branches of the dead trees, filling the area with an ominous creaking. Rita gripped her father's shirt, terrified. A voice came from the shadows of the cave. It sounded like a very old and sick woman. Anda musti Mumbaya. You must pay. Rita's father said that he was fine with losing the fortune. The voice only laughed and wheezed. It told him that he would keep the wealth. But there was a heavier price. And somehow, deep inside her soul, Rita knew immediately that she had to be the one to pay it. As they walked out of the jungle, Rita started to notice eyes watching her from everywhere. Some of them were curious. Some were menacing. Most of them were glowing red. And all of them were completely inhuman. Rita was already frightened, but when she discovered that her father couldn't see what she saw, she started to panic. As they drove back to the city, she hyperventilated as she witnessed spirits roaming the roadside. Reaching the city, she cried and rocked back and forth as she was overwhelmed by all the creatures on every corner, on the roofs of buildings, crawling out of windows and stalking unsuspecting people. Rita couldn't sleep that night, even with her parents by her side. She hadn't been able to clearly see what was hiding within the shadows of that cave. But she saw, in horrifying detail, every single creature that hid within the shadows of her room and her home. And they all saw her. She screamed and screamed until morning when she finally lost her voice and collapsed from exhaustion. Rita's parents brought her to several specialists in Sabah and all around Malaysia. None of them could figure out how to close her third eye. Whatever had opened it 
they all said, was more powerful than anything they had ever seen. Eventually, Rita's father learned of a man in Indonesia who might help. He couldn't close my third eye either, Rita tells me. But he taught me how to control it. It suddenly strikes me then why Rita is so deliberate with her movement and words. It's not a result of her steering clear of questionable locations. It's because she's constantly on guard to stop herself from seeing more than any one person should ever see. And in this month, when the spirits roam our world more freely, I couldn't even begin to imagine what she must be going through, no matter how much training she's had. I quietly observe her for a moment or two, and start to notice that her left eye twitches every few seconds. I wonder what she's seeing, but that silently chastise myself. As much as I collect these stories, I don't ever want to see the world through Rita's eyes. I'm left with this thought as Rita leaves and I wait for my next interviewee to arrive. It's a chilly Saturday evening as Ross, a motherly middle-aged woman, takes a seat across from me at a kopitiam in Woodlands. She greets me with a quietly cheery hello, and almost immediately, I'm lost in the warmth of her personality. Ross owns a printing service out of Johor with a predominantly Singaporean customer base, so she finds herself shuttling between the two countries regularly. For someone who runs a pretty time-sensitive business, however, there's none of the hurried urgency that comes with most entrepreneurs. Instead, there seems to be an aura of patience and kindness around her. As our coffees arrive, she talks a little about growing up in Kedah. My hometown, Sedarang, was about an hour from Penang. She says, every weekend, my grandmother would drive up there with me, just so we could share a bowl of laksa at a stall run by this sweet old uncle. As she speaks, I can practically smell the Assam flavor and feel the love that she associates with these memories. But even so, there's just a hint of sadness to them. It's not so much the way she describes these memories to me that gets all this across, though. I actually don't know how to explain it. But when she shifts the conversation to an encounter she had, I inexplicably feel the change in her mood, too. Honestly, the experience itself was bad enough, she says. Not completely uncomfortable but still clearly affected by what had happened. 
but it also... And she trails off for a second, shrugs, and composes herself, and then continues with an apologetic smile. Sorry, it's just that it's a bit of a complicated situation. I reassure her that it's fine, as I fish out my recorder, then switch it on, and tell her when she's ready to start from the beginning. It was a Friday night, back in 1993. Ross, just 14 back then, was walking over to her friend Sarah's place. The pair had a sleepover planned, their first ever since growing closer over the last year. Nothing but a whole evening of listening to the hit music radio station while they caught up on what was happening in their school's various social circles. As Ross approached Sarah's home, she saw a man whom she assumed was Sarah's dad waiting for her at the gate. From across the street, she waved and introduced herself. Sarah's father smiled at first, but as she got... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Closer. His... Expression changed. He seemed to be glaring angrily at something just behind her. Ross glanced over her shoulder, but saw nothing there. She turned back to Sarah's dad, who was cautiously opening their front gate. What are you bringing here? He seemed to be asking this of Ross, even though his attention wasn't focused on her. Ross asked him what he meant, but after a moment or two, his reaction seemed to soften, almost as if he had reached some kind of understanding. He ignored Ross's question and instead welcomed her in more warmly, just as Sarah came out to greet her. The girls freshened up while Sarah's parents prepared the dinner. By seven, everyone had gathered at their porch for a hearty serving of Mirabos. The strangeness from earlier had seemed all but forgotten. Sarah's mum asked about Ross's parents as she dished out noodles for the girls. Sarah's dad asked her with mock sternness, whether any boys had shown interest in his daughter. Everyone was laughing and joking and having a good time. But then, Sarah suddenly went quiet. It took Ross a while to notice at first, but Sarah's family seemed to pick up on the sudden change almost immediately. Almost like 
they were expecting it. Ross tells me that Sarah's parents have been hiding a secret from their daughter. Every couple of nights, she'd be possessed, she says, uneasily. She tells me that the spirit, or whatever it was, didn't harm anyone, thankfully, but it would just sit there and curse and spit at her parents and in Sarah's own voice. That hurt her parents more than any physical attack could have, she says. And I find myself feeling the sorrow in her tone. Every time Sarah eventually came to, she would have no memory of the position. Sometimes she thought she had just dozed off. Other times, she wasn't even aware of the time she had lost. Her family chose to keep this from her, hoping to deal with it before she found out the horrible truth. Ross says that Sarah's dad had contacted a few people to try and coax the spirit out of her to get it to leave her alone, but no one seemed to be able to keep it away. What Ross didn't realize at the time was that her family had hidden something from her too. Sarah's father turned towards Ross. He pleaded with her, while again not focusing on her. Confused, Ross asked him what he was talking about. Sarah's father looked just as perplexed for a second, seemingly baffled by Ross's own confusion. Do you know that you have a Saka? A Saka is a kind of jinn, Ross explains. One that belongs to people and can be used for good or ill. She continues, It's been said that it's passed down through generations, that it can heighten people's emotions, making them more sensitive towards others. Ross knew none of this at the time, though. All she knew was that she wanted to help her friend. Sarah's father pleaded with the Saka through her to help. Ross said that she would, but she didn't know how. Sarah's father, however, had been learning more about the supernatural ever since the positions first started. He asked Ross to sit in front of his daughter. This clearly made whatever had possessed Sarah nervous. With Sarah's voice, it snarled at Ross, yelling curses at her. She didn't sound possessed, but Ross wished that she did. That's how I know how badly it hurt Sarah's parents, Ross tells me. Her sadness so palpable that I can feel her hurt too. Sarah's father placed his palms on Ross's neck and started praying. For a while, nothing happened. The spirit's taunts were louder than anything else, 
louder than Sarah's mother's sobs and cries, louder than her father's prayers. And then, just as suddenly as before, silence. Sarah stared at Ross for a second, saying nothing. Her face twisted up in anguish before she started coughing profusely and crying. For the first time since the possessions started, she seemed to be truly free of the offending spirit. And now, she remembered everything. I asked Ross when her grandmother passed away. Not even a year before what had happened with Sarah, she tells me. Her mood lightened a little. Her thoughts drifting back to the woman who had taken her on all those drives to Penang just for Laksa. She tells me that her grandmother always protected her when she was alive, always made sure she felt loved and safe. I guess she wanted to make sure that you continued feeling that way even after she was gone, I say. Ross smiles and says, I was just thinking that. Alan's arms are scarred with reminders of his past. For the last 20 years, he's run a small electronics repair business where his biggest concerns have been making rent and paying his employees. They're not exactly trivial matters, he tells me, but they're certainly not as pressing as the kinds of things he faced as part of a gang back in his younger days. He rubs the marks on his arms, some of them lasered off tattoos, and some of them scars he'd earned from clashing with knife and parang-wielding rivals. I ask him what finally turned him away from that life, and he smiles. Two women, he says. One of them, he tells me, is his partner, Celine. It wasn't an easy road for them, from meeting and falling in love to leaving behind a world of violence, starting a family. But Celine made it all worthwhile, he says, flipping out his phone to show me pictures of them together over the years. As he scrolls through the photo gallery, I ask Alan who the other woman was. He doesn't say anything. Instead, he lowers his head a little and puts his phone away. His smile slips, only slightly, as he starts to rub his arms again, thoughtfully. I don't repeat the question. I simply give him a moment and switch my recorder on and tell him that when he's ready, he can start from the beginning. It was the early 90s. Alan was returning home at around 11pm from a date with Celine that ended pretty much how most of their dates ended back then. With an argument. He was fuming, but as always, he was angrier more at himself than with her. She'd broken down and cried 
after discovering yet another scar, one that he'd sustained on his back two weeks before, but had managed to keep from her. Her voice shaking, Celine said that Alan's luck was going to run out sooner or later, and someone was going to do a whole lot worse than just leave a scar. She gave him an ultimatum. Part ways with the gang or lose her. In the heat of the moment, Alan's temper flared. With as much venom in his tone as he could muster, he told Celine that his brothers had been there with him long before he'd met her. And he promised that they'd be there long after her too. Alan stormed off leaving Celine in tears, and regretted it almost immediately. He didn't mean what he'd said, of course. The truth was that he actually wanted to leave the gang, but she just didn't understand how difficult that was going to be. The walk from the bus stop to his flat in Ubi took about 15 minutes. It was generally well lit, but there was a short, gloomy stretch on a small road that seemed to be perpetually shrouded in darkness, even during the day. Alan had been frightened of the stretch when he was much younger. Scared of monsters lurking in the shadows, waiting to reach out and devour him. But as time passed, though, that fear all but vanished. By his early twenties, Walking down that small road on most nights would just remind him of simpler times. On this particular night, however, lost in his anger, he barely even noticed that he'd started down this stretch. He hadn't been paying attention to his surroundings at all, really, until a chill shook him out of his thoughts. It wasn't windy that night, he tells me. There wasn't a breeze blowing through, and the leaves on the trees were all completely still. Yet, Alan began to shiver. As this cold gripped him, he started to grow aware of a sensation, a feeling like... He was being followed. The hairs on the back of his neck stood on end. He'd spun around a couple of times to see if there was anyone behind him. Nothing. Except that nagging feeling. Just a glimpse of what looked like a plain white dress gliding in the air around him, always in his periphery. It's your imagination, he thought, shaking his head. You're exhausted from that fight with Celine. But even as he chuckled and chastised himself for making a big deal out of nothing, Alan's pace nevertheless began to pick up. Eventually, though, as he neared the end of the stretch, couldn't deny it any longer. Darting his head around one last time, 
he finally managed to catch sight of it. Not a clear view, but clear enough. It wasn't his imagination at all. It was a person floating on the wind, circling around him. Without a second's thought, Alan sprinted out of that stretch as fast as he could, only slowing down as he approaches flat. Catching his breath, he noticed that there was a funeral at one of the neighboring void decks, but he didn't think much of it at the time, more concerned with getting back to the safety of his home than anything else. The following day, however, as he was heading out to the bus stop for work, he passed by the funeral again. And something about the deceased photo caught his attention. There was a woman, probably only a couple of years younger than him. Even though she wore a neutral expression in her photo, something about her connected with him. And that's when realization hit. Ellen recognized the young woman in the photo. In fact, the last time he had seen her was the night before, wearing white and gliding all around him. Alan skipped work that day and rushed to the temple his parents had brought him to as a child. There, he spoke to a priest who told him that what he had seen was a spirit that didn't know she was already dead. The priest assured Alan that he would speak to the young woman's parents and help the spirit find its way to the other side. Before Alan could leave, however, the priest asked him how he had been feeling. Lost spirits, the priest had said, tend to latch onto people going through emotional turmoil. Still frazzled from his experience, Alan lost his cool once more and yelled at the priest to mind his own business. The priest, however, Remain calm. Resolve what troubles you, he had said, as Alan stormed out of the temple. Furious as he was, though, those words stayed with Alan all day. And later that night, he called Celine again and calmly said that they needed to talk. And a few months after, he finally found a way out of the gang. We actually reached out to that young woman's parents a couple of years after Celine and I got married, he says, his head still tilted down slightly. He continues, they took it surprisingly well. Enough time had passed, I guess, but still, I, well, I broke down to tears when I told them about how, even in death, their daughter had changed my life. Alan says that he and Celine still visit the woman's grave 
every year on the anniversary of his encounter. Finally, he looks back up at me, the warmth returning to his smile, and I notice that he's even stopped rubbing his arm. The funny thing is, when I saw her face that night, of course I was scared, he says. But I soon realized that even in that moment, I knew it wasn't just her that was lost. In a sea of people, both young and old, all on their phones, Nira certainly stands out. She's sitting at the alfresco area of a Holland Village cafe. All around her, the noise of a boisterous weekend crowd seems impossible to ignore. But there's Nira, totally unfazed and completely engrossed in the book she's reading. Getting in touch with Nira wasn't exactly straightforward. Because of what had happened to her, she hasn't had a mobile phone since 2010. So there are stretches of her day where she's completely uncontactable. I greet her and order myself a plain black coffee. She orders herself another latte. Nira says that going without the phone wouldn't have been something she would have considered on her own. Even after the incident, she still tried to go back to what she considered normal back then. Nira used to work in an ad agency and would need her phone by her side at almost all hours. Eventually, however, the stress of work mixed in with the trauma of what had happened was just too much for her to take. I'm a security guard now, she says, with a bright smile. She then adds, with an unmistakable sigh of relief, I get paid a lot less, but I'm quite sure I'm not going to die of a heart attack anytime soon. Our drinks arrive, and we both raise our glasses to a longer life. As she takes a sip, I switch my recorder on and ask her to start from the beginning. It was the middle of the Hungry Ghost Month back in 2010. Nira had yet another late night at the office. But it was still early enough for her to catch the last train home. As she walked from Bukit Batok Station back to the flat that she shared with her mum and older sister, the only thing on her mind was reheating the biryani that her mum had made for dinner and crashing in bed. Not really paying attention to her surroundings, she was surprised when she felt her left foot kick something on the ground. She heard the unmistakable sound of a phone's casing scraping against the rough concrete of the sidewalk. Nira looked down and saw an iPhone 4 just a meter or so in front of her. She picked it up, tried to switch it on, but it wouldn't respond. She figured the battery was dead, but knew she had a compatible charging cable at home, so she brought the phone back with her. Her sister, Nisha, was still up when she got home. A building manager for a couple of condos, Nisha was definitely the more relaxed of the two sisters. So, when Nira 
showed her the phone that she had found, Nisha's reaction was not at all what she had expected. Nisha suddenly grew tense and agitated. Nira asked her what was wrong. Nisha couldn't give her a straight answer, just that she had an uneasy feeling. Nira shrugged it off, too tired to comfort her sister. Instead, she went to her room, dug out the cable, and left the phone to charge on the floor in a corner while she headed to the kitchen to heat up and eat her supper. When she got back to her room, the phone's battery was still pretty weak, so she kept it plugged in and turned it on, hoping to find some clue as to who the owner was. She realized, as the phone started up, that it felt light. Lighter than she thought the iPhone 4 was supposed to be. She brushed the thought aside, though, as the screen brightened up. Thankfully, the phone wasn't locked. As she browsed through it, she realized that it didn't have any other apps installed besides the ones that came standard. There weren't any contacts saved in the phone either. She would have figured that it was new. Maybe someone had lost it before they even had the chance to use it, she thought to herself. Except there was a photo of an old man as its wallpaper. There was something unsettling about that photo. It wasn't the old man that disturbed her. He was smiling genially at the camera. It was a woman next to him who had been cropped out. Nira couldn't see anything besides a bit of her left side, but nevertheless, she was filled with an uneasy feeling. She popped her head out of her room to see if Nisha was still awake, but her sister had gone to bed already. Nervously, Nira decided to just switch the phone off, leave it charging, and head to bed herself. Nira tells me that it was three in the morning when she was awoken by a strange sound, like a humming. I checked my phone at first because I thought someone was calling me, she says. When she realized it wasn't her phone, she shook off her sleepiness and looked around the unlit room. That's when she noticed a slight glow coming from the corner where the iPhone had been charging. She thought it was just on vibrate and figured its owner was trying to call her. As she reached it, however, she remembered. She had switched it off before she went to bed. The noise started to grow clearer. It wasn't a hum, more like a growl. Cautiously, she picked up the phone. Its screen was aglow with the wallpaper of that genial old man still smiling. 
but next to him now was the old woman in her entirety, glaring menacingly at her. Suddenly, the phone started to buzz. Someone was calling. Nira stifled a scream and debated whether to answer. But the phone continued to vibrate in her hand angrily. She tapped on the screen and slowly lifted the phone to her ear. On the other end was that growl again, louder this time. And then the voice of an old woman. The old woman. She was sure of it. Not yours. It spat. Nira threw the phone to the ground, scrambled out of a room, and banged on Nisha's door. Her sister let her in, but the two of them couldn't sleep for the rest of the night. Nira swears that she could hear the voice from the other room until the sun came up. Not yours. The following morning, Nira took her first day off in two years. At about 9am, she crept back into her own room. In the corner, lying on the ground, was not an actual iPhone 4, but a paper recreation of one. Together with Nisha, Nira retraced her path from the MRT station to their flat. Very near, when Nira had found the phone the night before, they discovered a plate of food and some joysticks reverently placed along the sidewalk. Nira apologized, placed the paper phone next to the food, and headed back home. She tells me that for a month after the incident, she'd jump every time her phone vibrated. She started getting chest pains, but she knew they weren't from any supernatural causes, just anxiety. At the start of November, she quit her job. After she served her month's notice, she sold her phone and cancelled her line. She smiles again. That bright smile. But I also notice a slight tension in her demeanor. I casually take a glance around all those people with their phones. I thank her and tell her that I've gotten all I need. She shakes my hand, tells me she'll be heading back home and stands up a little too quickly, then rushes through the boisterous weekend crowd. Anna looks tired as she takes a seat across from me at a Tiongbaru coffee house with a soy latte in hand. I ask her if she's had a busy day. She laughs and says, What do you mean, had? I'm heading back to work after this. Anna's a creative director at a tech startup, which means that, as she puts it, she practically lives in the office. I ask her whether that puts a strain on her marriage. 
she smiles affectionately and shakes her head. As long as she looks after her health, she tells me, her husband doesn't give her too much grief about it. He knows it's what I love to do, and, like it or not, he gets that the late nights are just a part of the job, she says, taking a sip of her latte. She adds with another laugh, however, that he won't stop by and visit her in the office anymore. Not after what had happened, anyway. It was Anna's husband, Edgar, that actually suggested she meet up with me. I ask her why Edgar didn't join us, since he's a part of this story too. She chuckles and tells me that he usually clocks out on time. So, he'd rather not have the incident on his mind just before he heads back for an evening at home with no one else but the cat around. I smile politely. I can't really tell her that I understand, of course. It's not like I keep regular hours in my particular line of work. Instead, I place my recorder on the table and ask her when she's ready to start from the beginning. It was late last year, just two months after the company had moved into their Shenton Way office space. The vending machines and the bar were fully stocked. There was a pool table, a video game room, and even a modestly sized gym. More importantly though, there was still an air of excitement among the relatively small team. People were gladly working overtime, driven less by deadlines and more by the kind of enthusiasm that comes from being on the ground floor of something new. Still, by around 11, on this particular Wednesday night, almost everyone had gone home. Well, everyone, except for Anna, that is, who was hoping to get a head start on a project. In the last two decades or so, Anna had worked in everything from office towers to shop houses. The only time she'd ever experienced anything out of the ordinary at night was when she encountered a rat in an office pantry a few years ago. So, when she felt like she was being watched, she tried to shrug it off. She was tired, she reasoned. She wasn't the young, hungry, creative she used to be. Hell, she said out loud, I'm just not as young as I used to be. She chuckled to herself, a little louder than she normally would, hoping that it would distract her from that unsettling feeling that she wasn't alone. Just before midnight, though, she was startled by the buzzer at the front door. It was Edgar. He decided to surprise her by dropping by with some sate from La Passat. She told him it was sweet of him and that he really didn't need to. She didn't want to tell him the truth because it felt silly now that she wasn't alone. But the truth was that she was deeply relieved that he had shown up. Edgar gave her a loving peck on the cheek, but then his eyes widened as he took in the sight of Anna's work desk. 
scattered messily amongst a notebook, tablet, desktop setup, and secondary monitors of five crushed cans of soda. Edgar grunted disapprovingly as he waved one of the cans accusingly at her. But Anna only shrugged. The sugar keeps me going, she laughed. Edgar rolled his eyes as he tossed the can he was holding into the basket beside her table. The couple had their supper in the pantry, enjoying the view of the city. If Anna was being honest, she tells me, that used to be another reason why she didn't mind working late. Not just for the work itself, but to see the skyline all lit up. After supper, Anna decided that she'd call in a night. So while Edgar headed to the bathroom, she washed up the plates. She'd barely finished when she heard Edgar call out to her from the direction of her desk. There was something in his tone that concerned her. It wasn't fear. At least, not yet, anyway. Anna jogged back to her desk, wiping her hands on her jeans. But when she got there, she didn't notice what Edgar was staring at. Not at first. She was about to ask him what was wrong when she followed his line of sight and saw the five crushed soda cans stacked one on top of the other. Did you do this? Edgar asked, his voice level. Anna shook her head. And... You're sure we're the only ones here? He added, though he clearly knew what her answer would be. Still, she nodded anyway, slowly. In that same level tone, Edgar asked her to back up. Quickly, but awkwardly, Anna navigated her way around to pick up her backpack. Careful, not to touch the desk. I didn't know what would happen if I bumped into the desk and the cans fell, she tells me, somehow looking even more exhausted now. And I didn't want to know. With her backpack in tow, Anna and Edgar headed straight for the exit, not bothering to switch off the lights on their way out. The walk from her desk to the door couldn't have been more than a couple of steps, but it felt like forever to them. The whole time, Anna was gripped by that unsettling feeling from before. They were being watched. She could feel wherever it was glaring at her from behind. Menacingly, yes, but also a little playfully. As they reached the door, Anna and Edgar stopped suddenly, flinching at the sound of the five soda cans crashing down. Without a word to each other, the couple scrambled out of the office as quickly as they could. In that rush, though, Anna could have sworn that she heard a child giggling from her desk. Anna's not a spiritual person, 
but she absolutely refused to come into the office until the CEO had the space blessed by a representative from every major religion. Making demands of the boss, it's one of the perks of being an old hand in this industry, she says, with a smirk. I return a grin, then ask if those blessings are why she's okay with working well into the night now. She tells me she's not actually fine with working late. She tries not to, and when she does, like tonight, she insists that the CEO and at least one other person is there with her. She finishes a soy latte, then says, It's like I told Edgar, there are things that are part of the job that you have to work around or just accept. And this is now one of those things. The first thing that strikes me about Derek is how laid back he is. Wearing a loose-fitting singlet, Bermuda shorts and flip-flops, he's already sipping on a tea earlier when I arrive at the coffee shop in Jurong. It's around 10 on a Tuesday morning, so after I order a kopi from the drink stall auntie, I ask him if he has anywhere else he needs to be soon. He gives me an easy smile and shakes his head lazily, rubbing the sparse hints of a beard along his jawline. He tells me that today, like most of his days now, is free and easy. Derek had emailed me some details about his story, so the stark contrast between whom he'd been during that experience and who he is now is a bit of a shock. Ten years ago, Derek was working in the banking industry. His career on the rise thanks to his ability to not just cope, but thrive in that incredibly stressful environment. He worked off his stress with drinks and women, but what helped him cope the most was illegally racing his souped-up sports car. He tells me that there have been more than a few crackdowns over the years, but back then, if you had enough cash, knew the right people, and were determined enough, you could still find these late-night races scattered across the island. One such spot for these races was Mandai Road, leading up to and past the crematorium and columbarium. He straightens up slightly when he talks about this area. It clearly had an effect on him, though not necessarily one of terror. His tone gets a little more somber than before, as he says that it was one thing for him to be risking his life in pursuit of an adrenaline high, but what he regrets the most from that time was racing so close to such a solemn and hallowed place. Still, he tells me that it was on that stretch where he went from who he was 
to who he is now. I take that as my cue, pull out my recorder, and ask him to start from the beginning. Derek and his buddy Brandon would always check out the stretch they'd be racing down, preferably a day before the race itself. Getting a feel of the area at a leisurely pace, after all, meant fewer surprises and the heat of the competition. Driving up and down Mandai Road that sunny Saturday afternoon, two things occurred to Derek. The first was that there were no sudden twists or turns, which meant that all the races would be on relatively equal footing. Good, he thought, grinning to himself. When no one had an advantage, when there weren't any odds on favourites to win, that only meant that a competition would be a lot fiercer. And that was the kind of race that Derek loved the most. The other thing that occurred to him, however, was how many hearses he'd passed by. He knew the crematorium and columbarium were along this road, but it still surprised him. A nagging sense of discomfort gnawed at the back of his mind, but he brushed it off, choosing instead to focus on the excitement of the race ahead and the thrill of what he felt was his inevitable win. The races all gathered the following night by 2am. The race itself began soon after, starting near Sambawang Road and ending just before Woodlands Road. Six cars navigated the empty stretch, the persistent buzzing of their engines the only sounds that filled the air. Of the six, Derek's narrowly came in second, despite putting up what he describes as a hell of a fight. Sheepishly, he confesses that he didn't take it well, He yelled at the winner and accused him of cheating. He kicked some of the other cars and even spat at their drivers. Eventually, though, Brandon managed to pull him away and the pair drove back down towards a section of the road with a clear view of Upper Salita Reservoir to cool off. There, they popped open the boot of Brandon's car and fished out a couple of bottles of beer. Sitting on the roadside barrier, Derek let off a tirade of curses and swears at no one in particular, punctuating his tantrum by flinging his emptied bottle into the reservoir's otherwise still waters. Spinning back around, he let off a mirthless laugh, but was stopped short by the sudden and weirdly silent appearance of a mostly emptied chartered bus, which was parked right beside their cars. The fluorescent lights in the vehicle had an unearthly glow and flickered unevenly. Its driver, an elderly Chinese man, eyed Derek and Brandon silently for a while. His Expression was 
oddly blank. Derek, his rage fueled further by the booze, yelled at the man to mind his own business. Unlike Derek, however, Brandon immediately realized that there was something not quite right about this whole situation. He tried to calm Derek down, but Derek just kept spewing obscenities until the man slowly, deliberately, and very calmly alighted the bus. At that point, Derek tells me, even he began to grasp the strangeness of it all, quietening down, but still eager for a fight. Derek glared at the man, who continued to stare right back, silently. Derek wasn't sure if it was a trick of the light, or just his imagination, but he could have sworn the man was engulfed in a glow similar to that of the fluorescent lights in his bus. Finally, the man spoke. Why are you here? He said, plainly. Before Derek or Brandon could respond, he continued, It's very late. Don't stay here. He paused for a second, then added, with a slight smile and an ominous gleam in his eye, You're disturbing people. The man's tone was monotonous, nothing particularly threatening about it. Yet at that moment, all Derek and Brendan wanted to do was jump into their cars and drive away as quickly as possible. The man paused for just a little while longer and turned and silently boarded the bus again. The vehicle hissed, rumbled and slowly headed down Mandai Road, back in the direction of the crematorium and columbarium. Derek and Brandon turned to each other. They didn't say anything. They didn't have to. Their confused and terrified expressions said it all. But then, something a sensation or a feeling too strong to ignore compelled both of them to turn their attention back towards the bus. It still seemed empty. Then its lights flickered again. And suddenly, it was filled with people, all staring silently out the rear window at Derek and Brandon. The pair scrambled into their cars and sped back towards where the other racers were. As they approached Woodlands Road, however, Derek saw the flashing red and blue lights of police cars up ahead and panicked. He certainly didn't want to head back in the direction of the ghostly presence, but the very immediate threat of arrest frightened him a whole lot more. He executed a quick three-point turn and raced back the way he came. Soon, 
the lights of the police cars disappeared in his rearview mirror. But that didn't put him at ease, and it certainly didn't slow him down. Lost in the haze of his frenzied hysteria, it almost seemed like nothing could get him to take his foot off the gas. But then, he lost control of his car. I crashed into this massive tree, Derek says. His demeanor remains as relaxed as before, but he sounds almost like he's chastising himself. He continues, And I bet you can guess where that tree was, can't you? Right in front of the crematorium and columbarium, I venture. He smiles that easy smile and clicks a finger gun in my direction. After he was discharged from the hospital, he went through a whole legal battle that he says, without a hint of sarcasm, thankfully ended with him losing only his entire career. He took a couple of odd jobs after, but he wasn't too worried. He still had a decent chunk of change stashed away from his time in banking. And of course, he stopped racing altogether. I ask whether it had more to do with the accident or with the apparition he saw. He says that some part of him knew he was done racing that afternoon when he was checking out the road, when that nagging discomfort gnawed at the back of his mind. Something inside of him, a voice in his head, was trying to tell him that he shouldn't be there. At first, I thought it meant that I shouldn't have been at Mandai Road specifically, he says with a chuckle. What I think it actually was, though, was a warning that I needed to get out of that whole place in my life. He takes a sudden shift in our conversation and asks if I want another drink. I shrug and tell him that I wouldn't mind another kopi. And as I'm about to call the drink stall auntie over, he stops me, stands up and offers to order it for me instead. Before he heads over to the stall, however, he turns to me and says, I didn't listen to that voice in my head, that warning. He pauses, then adds as he limps away. But I found another way to get its message across. Hi. I'm breaking my own rule tonight. Except for maybe one or two exceptions, I've made it a point to never meet my interviewees at the places where their experiences happened. For one thing, they usually don't need to relive what happened to them. Not that viscerally, certainly. For another, it's just asking for trouble. But this particular interviewee was insistent. His name is Keith. Together with his partner and childhood friend Will, they explore infamously haunted spots 
for their YouTube channel, Ghastly GPS. He said that he'd tell me about his experience from three years ago, but only if I followed him back to where it happened. Yes, he'd be recording a new episode, but he told me that this was as much about apologizing for past transgressions as it was for creating new content. I was reluctant at first, but his story intrigued me. And it took place at a location that despite its reputation, I'd never been able to get a decent account about. Keith and Will assured me that they have taken all the necessary precautions. They're both armed with spiritual amulets. And in the days leading up to this evening, they burned offerings, chanted prayers, and asked a couple of holy men to bless them. Just to be safe, I've also brought along a few talismans of my own, ones that have served me well in the past. Despite all of this, however, I still have an uneasy feeling. Because I'm recording this live from Tanglin Brunei Hostel. In fact, we're outside the building's grounds now. But before we continue in, I'll start from Keith's beginning. Keith has loved photography since he was a kid. It was a love that began when his mom would let him take a few shots on her disposable Kodak cameras. For almost as long, Keith has also loved exploring. It practically became a routine for his parents to go out hunting for him around the upper-middle-class neighborhood every evening before dinner. He'd always find a new series of back lanes in between the almost identical semi-detached houses to get lost within. Or on good days, he'd discover a small but nevertheless fascinating forested area to trek through. He told me that this is what fueled his desire to create content around urban exploration. The supernatural aspect of it, he explained, only came about because it seemed like a natural fit. Teaming together with Will, Keith had explored everywhere from old Changi Hospital to our current location. Hey bro, come on, let's go. And that's Keith now, and it looks like we're ready to head inside. We're in the hostel, specifically in what I assume used to be a kitchen. Keith had described this to me as looking more like a mortuary than anything else. Because of the unnerving resemblance its concrete tables bore to slabs in a morgue. I, I suddenly see his point. There's an oppressive air to this room. Almost like something doesn't want us here. The area 
is littered with the remains of long burned out incense sticks. Clearly, anyone who's passed through knew well enough to show deference to whatever dwells in this room. We light our own, but it does nothing to dispel that sense that we're being watched, or that whatever's watching us isn't happy. It might have something to do with what Keith told me about his previous visit here. A broken family, relationship problems, financial woes. To say that he was going through a dark time back then would be an understatement. Which made him the last person who should have been exploring places like this. Carrying the weight of that darkness within him, Keith yelled out, in this very room, how he didn't believe in spirits, mockingly daring any to reveal themselves. He convinced himself that these theatrics were for his audience. I'd seen the video, and it certainly made for an engaging, if uncomfortable, watch. Whether it was Will trying to rein him in, or just knowing what he was going through at the time, I could clearly tell that Keith was on the tail end of a downward spiral. Keith didn't just hope to see the spirits back then. He wanted to face the consequences of encountering them. Wanna see where it happened? Yeah, sounds good. That's Will, by the way. He's suggesting we head up to the spot where their last visit took a treacherous turn. We're now at the top of a collapsed staircase leading out of this building. Next to the staircase is a man-made ramp and further down a concrete path. Off to the side is a grassy slope. On their previous visit, Will chose to take the ramp down. Keith, however, headed towards the grassy slope. Will had tried to convince him that this wasn't a good idea. He reminded him of a piece of advice a holy man had given the pair when they first started their YouTube channel. If there is a human road, take the human road. But Keith didn't need the reminder. He knew what was the smart thing to do. The smart thing to do would have been to take the ramp. But the smart thing would have also been to not mock any spirits that might have dwelt here. The smart thing would have been to show this ominous location the respect it commanded. Keith hadn't been doing the smart thing since he entered these grounds. So, of course, he headed towards the grassy slope. Uh, yeah, bro, it's right over there. You see? Keith just pointed to a pretty massive hole in the concrete path. A hole large enough for a full-grown man to fall through. That's exactly what happened to Keith three years ago. 
as he defiantly marched towards the grassy slope. The concrete path on which he tread suddenly gave way. He fell through, crashing violently down to an empty basement. Keith told me that it didn't just feel like falling though. It felt like he was being dragged down. As he landed in a cloud of dust and dirt, a section of rebar shot right towards his neck. The rebar fortunately missed him, but only by mere centimeters. Even as he caught his breath at the time though, he could have sworn that he saw something within that swirling cloud of dust. An old man's face glaring angrily at him. More than nearly being impaled, it was this face that frightened Keith out of his anger, out of his darkness. The dust began to settle. The face vanished too. But in that second or two, Keith locked eyes with the figure and he knew that what had happened wasn't an accident. Hey, be careful. It was a warning. If he didn't know it then, he certainly knew it later on when he got home. Wait, 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 This feels strange. The usual guy he he met with an accident. Or at least it seemed like an accident at first. My name is Will. And my name is Keith. We were there with him when it happened. And if I'm being honest, I really don't want to be here. I'd rather this was him instead of us, you know? But well. Bro, maybe it's better if you start from the beginning. Right. Right. Everyone knew him as the collector of ghost stories. So that's what we'll call him. The collector. He went with us to where my story happened. At Tangling Brunei Hostel. He told us that this was something he'd rarely done. Almost all his interviews were conducted at coffee shops and kopitiams. But he'd made an exception this time. And he paid for it. At some point during that night, a concrete path right outside one of the hostel's buildings, it it just gave away. The collector fell through, crashing right down into a basement. We couldn't see him from where we stood. We called out to him, 
but for what felt like forever. No answer. Yeah, we were damn scared lah. Trespassing into that place was one thing, but to lose someone, to add to the spirits that dwelt there, there's no adequate punishment for that crime. Not by an earthly court. Anyway. Finally, however, a hoarse voice from within the basement called back out to us. The collector was still alive. His scrapes and bruises certainly looked severe, but nothing seemed to be broken. Recovering from the shock of what had happened, the collector allowed himself another moment to just sit there within swirling clouds of dust and dirt to catch his breath. Eventually, he grunted, groaned and pulled himself back up to his feet. Through the eerily unlit corridors of that abandoned building, he slowly found his way back out. Having had enough excitement for one night, the collector and the two of us took our leave of those grounds. But the spirits weren't done with him yet. Yeah, unfortunately, we only found out this part later. Despite his condition, the collector made sure that he still stopped by a 24-hour coffee shop and ordered himself a kopi before heading back to his flat. It was one of the tips that he had learned from those that came before him. Never go straight home after an encounter. So he nursed his drink till four in the morning. Then, finally satisfied that he was safe, he decided that it was time for him to get some rest. As he returned to his flat, however, this uneasy feeling gripped him. A sensation like he had never felt before. Quickly, he made his way to his home's altar, where he burned offerings and said prayers. Some of which might be familiar to many holy men, but some of which are known only to a select few. Despite the ferocity of his prayers, he still couldn't shake that growing unease. The collector wasn't going to fool himself. This wasn't paranoia or residual effects from his shock. He decided to take a more direct approach. He pulled up a chair in front of the altar. Politely and almost plainly, he asked whatever had followed him home to show itself. For a while, nothing. Not a sound. And then, from within the shadows of his flat, an old man appeared, staring gravely at him. When he described the old man to us, it was uh, the same one that showed itself to me the last time. The collector took a deep breath and was about to speak 
But then, he realized that the old man was not alone. Soldiers in World War II uniforms, floating heads, ghost children, women in white with long black hair, spirits from his previous entries. All of them stepped forth from the shadows too. The collector panicked, looking from one entity to the next. Finally, however, he locked eyes with the old man again, who remained silent, but his stare said everything. The collector is not the first of his kind, Generations of generations of collectors have passed down knowledge and secrets and wisdom. But none of them understood the most crucial lesson of all. These stories that he chronicles are important, but not as important as the people who shared them and the spirits that these stories were about. So these entities came to the collector as a warning. They knew that he had been respectful so far. That night, however, was his first slip-up. And it would be the only one that they would allow. Then, just as suddenly as they had all appeared, the entities disappeared. It's a lesson for us as well. We're not going to be messing with this kind of thing anymore. I think that's why he wanted us to do this recording. Not just because he's recovering, but because he wanted it to sink in for us. When we tell their stories, they can hear it too. Yeah, man. So, how's it going? So far, so good. <clears throat> it certainly seems like it. You, uh, you want us to handle the next entry as well? Thank you, but I think I've got it. If you want to discover more of Southeast Asia's other side, subscribe now and follow us on social media. You can also be one of our supporters on Patreon. Look for We Are Huntu or click the links in the description. Ghost Maps is a Huntu production created by Kyle Ong and Wayne Ray with art direction by Jolene Lim and recorded on Audio Technica Mics.